Hey, we're going through a new series called uh, Bible Heroes. I'm not sure it's that new anymore. We've been doing it for almost a month, but we've been going through Joshua. We're getting into Judges today. We have a little reading plan like this uh, at the info desk uh, if you would like to get uh, stay current with us in the reading that we're doing uh, to keep track of all of that. We invite you to do that. Uh, we have a membership class today, as you heard Emily mentioned earlier in the service. Uh, so that's going to be happening right after this uh, service. And that's awesome, too, just to see people saying, yeah, this is a place. I want to make this church my home. I want to get invested here. I want to be committed here. I want to see my gifts put into circulation here. All of those good things and more happen at membership. So that's going to be happening right after uh, the service today. Those of you who are joining us should meet us over in the cafe. We're going to grab some lunch there and then go upstairs for the class. Uh, then tonight, what's happening tonight? Harvest Fest, that was not the most exciting. Uh, what's happening tonight? There we go. We're doing some harvest. I, I don't know that any of us, it, it would make more sense maybe if we were actually out doing some harvesting. You know what I mean? Like we need to do a little harvesting or something. And then, but maybe God's going to do a little spiritual harvesting today and that's good. Harvest Fest is happening tonight. Awesome opportunity for us just to kind of connect one to another. And uh, I want to encur encourage you to come out, uh, drop in, hang out, eat food, make friends. It's a super low pressure and a fun event uh, for you to be able to do. Hey, and while we're on the, the, ta the topic of exciting things. How many of you remember earlier this summer when I told you about renting a car and they had like a really fancy sports car was the only car they had. Do you remember what the car was that I rented? How many of you remember? It was a Chevy Camaro. It was a rag top convertible. It was beautiful. Can you believe this? That somebody actually, as I'm guessing is Pastor Appreciation Month and just wanted to be a blessing, actually bought me a Chevy Camaro with the, with the convertible top or whatever. I could not believe it. They actually said, this is your car, and I just want to tell you, if anybody wants to, to come over and check it out, it's really, really nice. Yeah, so that was pretty awesome, pretty awesome gift right there. That's good. Hey, as we get into uh, the message today, we're going to be in Judges 2, so you can grab your Bibles and flip over to Judges 2. We're starting a new book in this series as we're going through some of the Old Testament books. Uh, I'm going to give you two notes sort of quickly that I think are important. The Holy Spirit said, I just well, want to lean in uh, on these couple of things as we've come through the book of Joshua, and we talked about some hard stuff. Joshua, the, the invasion of the Canaanite land and the judgment of God, and like we talked about several of those things last week. I want to give you two notes, if you will, moving from Joshua into Judges on this idea of the judgment of God that I think would be valuable for us just to get our minds around as we do this. So here are the two notes. They actually, they're up on the screen. I'm going to expound on them just a little bit. This is not necessarily part of the message, but felt like an important piece as we go into Judges chapter 2. Uh, the first note is this. When you think about the judgment of God being poured out, there's violence in the Old Testament. There's difficult things that you can uh, be forced to digest as you read through this. Uh, I want you to see this as a physical expression of a spiritual reality. And here's what I mean by that, that God actually used the Israelite people, his people, as a tool of judgment to drive out, not just driving out people, but driving out practices that were steeped in spiritual opposition to God. This is a way of thinking and a way of being that is contrary to the nature of God. And so specifically, there's manifestations of immorality, of idolatry, of, ironically, violence, 
And the land of Canaan represented a physical expression of a spiritual battle. So especially as New Covenant believers, we can think in terms of Ephesians 6, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Sometimes the expression is in the physical, but the battle is spiritual. And I think the same thing is true here. In Judges, uh, God's people unfortunately, begin to reflect the same spiritual decay. And actually, the book that we're getting into today and what we'll give an overview of is that they actually get into this same cycle of being judged by God in the same way. So for the people that would say that, well, you know, God's people acting entitled or that whatever they want to do, they just go in and bully people around, they actually fall under the same judgment for falling into the same spiritual traps as the people who were before them. There was no special treatment. Holiness matters, and judgment was a real thing. Judgment is a real thing. And the second point that I want to make sure we don't gloss over is that judgment is a key factor in the gospel. So even as new covenant believers, as if you're in Christ today, you're not in the old covenant, you're not in the sacrificial system, you are not earning your way, and it's not your best record that's going to keep you in covenant relationship with Jesus uh, or with God. It is the finished work of Christ. So even when you're there, listen, judgment is an important part of the gospel, and the place that I think sometimes we get this wrong, and I felt convicted to say this to you, make sure that you're, you're hearing this, is that we miss the gospel reality when we say, well, God is a God of love. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to be healthy. He wants me to, you know, he just wants good things for me, sort of a, a very grandfatherly view of God who just gives me candy and, you know, comfort and everything like that. The fact of the gospel, it actually starts with incredibly bad news. And we have to understand this. The bad news of the gospel is that there is no one righteous. There is not a person on this earth. There's not a person you know, not your sweet old grandma, not your little kid, not you, who is like, oh, actually pretty good in the eyes of God. And all of us deserve the wrath of God that is coming. That's the bad news of the gospel. Nod your head if that makes sense to you. Don't nod your head if you like it, because nobody should like that. But that's, if we don't embrace that, then the finished work of Jesus doesn't make any sense. Because the finished work of Jesus says, in the storm of God's coming wrath, there is a shelter. There is a covering. There is a way out for anyone who would say, what will I do in the presence of a holy God? And on your own, you're in bad shape. The beauty of the gospel is that all of us who are understanding the bad shape that we are in actually have the covering of Christ. So I just would implore you, I, I, have, a, I have a spiritual responsibility to you as your pastor. I do not want you to stand before God someday and say, I thought this was just all about a loving God who liked, liked me to be happy. You know what I mean? To stand before the judgment of God unprepared, that's a terrible thing. And that would be terrible for me to leave you in that place. So hear this. The judgment of God is a real thing. And that is what makes the sacrifice of Jesus so precious and so good. The hope that you have is in Christ. To all who would, re who would rest on their best efforts, we are still in that hopeless place. Or, or we, we are hoping for the best. In Christ we have received the best. The judgment of Jesus, the judgment of God is satisfied at the cross. And so those are two notes that I want to make sure that we're understanding. Don't throw away the idea of judgment just because it's hard. Wrestle with it. 
grapple with it, do business with it, and there's good things and glorious things that will be found. Uh, three things that I want you to look at, we're going to look at Josh, uh, Judges 2 today, and uh, sort of three ways that we will kind of process this. The first one is this idea of a squandered legacy. I'll unpack that here in a minute, but that's our point one, a squandered legacy. Then we're going to look at uh, a nasty cycle that goes all the way through this book. And then finally, the wisdom of judges. What is it that we can glean from reading the book of Judges? So the first part is this, a squandered legacy. That's our first point. Uh, judges is... Uh, the beginning of Judges, the end of Joshua, is, is fairly optimistic. You know, Joshua is saying things like, as for me and my house, we will we'll serve the Lord. Like, we're in. We're going to do it the right way. And he brings us to the people, and he calls them. He's getting to the end of his life, definitely to the end of his leadership and ministry, and he's calling the people forward. And they are responding, and they're saying, we will serve the Lord. Now, incidentally, As you read through this very discouraging book of Judges, what you're actually going to get a very good glimpse of is this is the best result of the old nature. The heart that wants to say, I want to do the right thing. I want to serve the Lord. And yet to find them generationally incapable of doing it. That's not a new story. And that's your story and mine as well. Okay, so we get this little picture. It's actually pretty optimistic. Joshua's saying we're going to f- serve the Lord. The people are saying we're going to serve the Lord. But then they're falling short again and again. And now as we get into Judges, it's kind of like you're reading through it. You're kind of hoping for the best. You, you want them to finally get it. You know what I mean? And, and many of you have experienced that. You're, you're watching somebody struggle, and you just know if, if you could just make this right choice and just get to that place, and you're wanting this for God's people, even as you come to Judges 2. So read with me this first point, A Squandered Legacy, uh, verses 8 and following of Judges 2. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Harry's, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. And then listen to verse 10 of Judges 2, because this sums up the whole book pretty well for you. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors or died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I'm going to read that again. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's a hard verse. It's a hard verse because when you've gone through the Old Testament up to this point and you're thinking about the creation work of God and the covenant that he's established with Abram and the the creating of a people that would be his own so that even when they went into slavery, he sends them a, a miraculous deliverance and he teaches them to worship and he's revealing more and more of himself and who he is and what he desires and the sacrificial system that though it is difficult is actually showing how an unholy people can come into the presence of a holy God and they can have this right relationship and they're heading to the promised land, which is going to be this great thing. And a whole generation that misses that great thing because they've, they've missed out and they've grumbled and complained and they die in the wilderness. And now a next generation has come and they're ready to go and Joshua has anointed their leader and they're going to go in and they're going to get it and they're going to be in the right place. It's a spiritual legacy. 
So how does it come to this? And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in this message. How does that actually happen? That a generation would die off that was fervent, had seen the work of God, believe in the, in the power of God, believe that obedience to God and faithfulness to God and courageous uh, uh, following of him mattered, and then another generation would come up right behind them that doesn't even know him or the things that he has done. This is a squandered spiritual legacy. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but you hear these stories about rich people uh, who achieve a whole lot, and they build big empires, and they build big riches, and they amass all kinds of things, and they hand it off to their kids, and then their kids and their grandkids like squander the whole thing. And you go like, what? What, what did they not get in, in, in the example of seeing this? This is sort of a, a squandering. I thought one of these examples was kind of interesting. Uh, Steve Hargreaves, who writes for CNN Money, he says, you know, rags to riches is a familiar narrative, but when it comes to preserving family fortunes, and money is not the only measure of success, but it is a measurable one, he says, when it comes to family fortunes, more often it is rags to riches and then back to rags. And he uses this example of the Vanderbilt family. How many of you have been to like the Vanderbilt estates and some of those kind of things? So in the 1800s, Cornelius Vanderbilt was the patriarch of the family. And through his shipping business and other things like that, uh, he amassed billions and billions of dollars. He became incredibly rich uh, in comparative dollars, well richer than uh, Bill Gates would be today. And yet his children, and especially his grandchildren, what they were proficient at was spending daddy and grandpa's money. And so when, when they, a few generations go by, in 1970, uh, there was an author that was writing about this, Robert Gunther, and he said there was this gathering of the Vanderbilts in all of their families, and so they went in expecting to see, you know, what would all of these uh, b uh, benefactors uh, do, uh, or beneficiaries do, with all the money that they had received, and they said they were shocked to find that not one of those people was a millionaire even though billions of money, billions of dollars have been handed down. This is a squandered legacy. The, the book of Judges actually demonstrates the complete failure on the part of God's people. But here's the thing that begins to raise in our minds. We gotta ask this question. If human effort is not enough, where does our hope come from? And now all of a sudden we're asking a really good question. If human effort is not enough, where does our hope come from? We look for the hopeful longings that emerge when we read the hard stories of the judges. They are pointing us, albeit painfully, toward the need of the human heart. They must also remind us that we must be committed to the next generation. That's why we talk about this a lot. We, we speak about this a lot. I preach about this a lot. We must be committed to reaching the next generation, to be faithful in your generation and to invest faithfully in the next. We'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But otherwise, what do we get? A squandered legacy. And here we have the people of God. Now listen, what, what do we say last week? We step in, we look at the mess, and then we step back and we look at the bigger arc of Scripture and what God has done. God's, God's plans are not thwarted by our failures to uphold. And we see this going through 
the book of Judges. The first one is a squandered legacy. The second thing is this nasty cycle. So here's our second point, nasty cycle. The, the repeated cycle in the book of Judges is as follows, and it just kind of goes again and again with, with incredible predictability, unfortunate predictability. There's sin of the people. Uh, the sin of the people leads to oppression that comes in from the outside as the judgment of God comes. The repentance ultimately emerges, which leads to their deliverance and peace. But then in the times of peace, they get lazy and they get greedy and they go back into sin. So I want you to read with me, continuing on verses 11. It actually says this in Judges 2. It says, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Idolatry was a big problem. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them, and they aroused the Lord's anger. So it's like the very thing that they were supposed to do was to kind of cleanse the land from the evil, cleanse the land from the idolatry, cleanse the land from the violence and the immorality, and now they're falling right into the same things. And this arouses the Lord's anger, and so then the judgment comes to them. So they forsake and they serve the Baals and the Ashtaroths and in his anger against them, the Lord gives them to the hand of raiders who plundered them. So this cycle continues. Listen to verse 15. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Go figure. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of of these raiders. This is an excellent sort of synopsis of what you will find as you read through the entirety of the book. So this cycle continues to repeat again and again. I want to pause for just a second and ask you this question because I think we would do well to wrestle with it. Why is it that times of prosperity and peace often lead us away from spiritual fervor? Have you ever noticed that? Like even in your own life, when everything's going great, we tend to forget about God. Everything's kind of rolling, everything's, going, everything's on the up and up, everything's moving up and to the right, everything, it's just everything's going the way you kind of hope it would go, and it's really easy in those moments, instead of being grateful, instead of being thankful, instead of being humble in terms of what's going on, we can forget about God. Why do times of prosperity and peace often lead us away from spiritual fervor? I, I would suggest to you a couple of things. Number one, I think God does have purpose in suffering. We go through seasons of suffering and God refines us in our struggles in ways that he does not seem to do in our comfort. Or maybe we just don't allow him to in our times of comfort the way we do in our times of pain. We tend to grow more rapidly and pray more fervently when the urgency of pain is upon us. How many of you have experienced that? Right? It's like you look, you go, I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. I'd rather be comfortable than not comfortable. But there is something that happens even in those points of pain. Even God's people, they're going, we're under oppression. We're sort of under the thumb of these nations that have come and invaded us. And we know it's because of our own sin. And so all of a sudden, this repentant heart begins to come up. I think it also shows us a couple of things that the human heart will always wrestle with gifts that distract us from the giver of those gifts. That's part of your tension. That's part of your own human heart issue. A little fun example of this, uh, someone shared this with me years ago. They said, you know, it's funny when I look at my pets, uh, my dog, I feed 
uh, my dog and I put shelter over their head and I, I give them a place to stay and sleep and all of this stuff. I take care of all of their needs and your dog looks at you and kind of says like, wow, you must be God. You're amazing. Thank you. And then you look at your cat. You do all the same things. You feed and you clothe and you give it shelter and everything and the cat looks at you and goes, wow, I must be God. You're serving me very well. And some of our personalities kind of skew one way or the other. I don't know why it is, but sometimes the comfort hopefully should lead us in to say, God, you're so good to us. But sometimes it kind of puts us in that place of being, I, I guess I'm pretty important. You know, I guess I'm pretty good. Why do times of prosperity and peace often lead us away from spiritual fervor? So while we wrestle with that, let's complete this little cycle here. Uh, it says that the people of God would not always listen to the judges. They, they wrestled, all of this kind of stuff. But whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with that judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. Look at verse 19. We have it on the screen. It says, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. And they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is the cycle that you see throughout the book of Judges happening again and again, usually in about a 20-year cycle, sometimes a little bit different, but essentially we have this generational cycle that has to be broken at some point. Let's take a look at it for just a few moments. If you read the book of Judges, you'll actually see there are six primary judges that are highlighted there. Don't think judge like a judge in a court of law. Think judge almost more like a tribal leader, somebody oftentimes a warrior that would be raised up that would be able to gather people, to motivate the people to say, God's got something better for us than this slavery and oppression. We need to repent and turn back to him. Um, sometimes they talked about repentance. Sometimes they didn't. I'm going to get to that. Uh, so, so the early judges were, were actually pretty good. You know, you, you read through the early judges, um, Othaniel, uh, Ehud, Deborah, and, and you get these pretty epic stories of deliverance and what God has done. Still very violent, mind you. Very, very violent. Um, and there's, I, I won't go into all the details, but there's, they're violent stories, but they're epic stories. God's deliverance is coming. And generally, these are men and women that, that have character, and, and they reflect something of the heart of God. It's not too hard to see in them. But as the book continues, and you look at the later judges, you become increasingly more suspect of who they are. In fact, when you begin to try to moralize everything that these people have done, because they're in the Bible, so they've got to be good, right? They've got to be good people. They're in the Bible. Uh, it becomes very difficult to navigate that. You can look at Gideon, and many of us learn about Gideon when we're in Sunday school, if you grew up in the church, and it's like, yeah, Gideon's a good guy. You know, he put out a fleece, you know, as he really wanted to know what God wanted. That was probably more disobedience than obedience, but, but he put out a fleece, and, and he was used by God to deliver the people from the oppression of the Midianites, and, and in fact, he fought a battle that was largely uh, not militarily won, because God kept kind of pruning down the army and saying, send these people away, send these people away, send and so now he's got this little tiny army and he wins it with clay pots and, and trumpets and, and torches and stuff like that and the Midianites become very afraid and so there's this wonderful deliverance of God and that much is true. It's very true. Gideon then decides that he's mad at his fellow Israelites who abandoned him and so he has them killed. A little less noble. And then Gideon decides that the gold that they have taken in uh, plundering their enemy, he, th he figures, well, 
Why don't I make an idol out of this? And by the end of his life, he's created, he's fashioned this thing, and now people are worshiping the idol, and at the end of his life, they're right back into the disobedience before God. It's kind of suspect. Continue to read about the story of Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah was used by God to defeat the Amorites, and he did something very curious. He said that he would sacrifice to God whatever came out of his house next. And the next thing that came out of his house was his daughter. And he's like, oh, well, I guess I'll just do it anyway. I remember as a kid reading this story. And I remember thinking, like, okay, they're in the Bible. They got to be good guys. You know, Samson's a good guy. Gideon's a good guy. I guess this guy's a good guy too. God is going to use him. And so then you read this story and you're like, what? And I actually heard somebody teach this because they probably didn't know what to do either. And they were like, well, I don't know. They said, well, at least he kept his word. And kids, if you make a promise, you should keep your word. That's the moral story of Jephthah. And I remember going, yeah, what? That can't be the right answer. And I've wrestled with this. I've seen other people wrestle with it. I've seen great men and women of faith just say, like, I don't know what to do with this story or whatever. I came across a very simple quote from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project. He said, here's the issue that's going on. As you progress and you see the downward spiral, even of the leadership that God is choosing and using, yes, he's using them, and yet they are not understanding the character of the God that they serve. The reason that made sense to him is that that was the kind of thing that the gods might demand in the idolatrous nations that they're casting out. That you make this deep sacrifice of something valuable to you to prove to the gods that you're worthy. To prove to the gods that you want something from them and to push them to give you that thing that they want. But how sad is it when now even the leaders no longer know the character of their own God? That's what you get from this story. You go to the life of Samson. Everybody loves Samson because he's like the Christian superhero. Be Samson for Harvest Fest. You know, dress up, big muscles. Everybody loves a guy that's strong and everything. But here's the deal with Samson. Samson battled the Philistines, and though God used him, he was a flawed leader and a faithful God, yes, like we've been talking about in this series, he had almost no regard for God. He lived a life without character and really without good fruit. He was promiscuous. He was angry. He was self-absorbed. He was not a moral leader. And actually, this is really helpful because some of you are going to read through the book of Judges and you're going to say, I don't really know what to do with this. What you need to understand from this is this is the descent away from the heart and the character of God, even among the leaders. And we see the spiral continue. So what are we supposed to do with that? That is not a helpful, this is like Debbie Downer message of the year, right? You're like, this is just, this is a horrible story. Why are you making me read this? And yet, God's word says all scriptures beneficial. All scriptures God breathed and it, it trains us and teaches us and corrects us. That's what Paul write, wrote to Timothy. So what do we do with Judges. In this last point, I simply want to take a few moments to talk about the wisdom 
of Judges. We already know this. We, we, we already know that God is the hero of the biblical narratives. We said this last week that when we read biblical narratives, including Joshua or Judges, um, they are not designed to give us prescriptive direction for how to live godly lives. To be very clear, we see deeply flawed people, some of whom God uses for very important things, but they are almost never displayed as men and women for us to be like. So that kind of sets us free from that burden. What I want to do is just simply return to the verse that we started with that describes the main problem of the book of Judges. Even as new covenant believers, there is wisdom that we can gain as we read this book. Judges 2.10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the question I asked you a few moments ago is this, how does that actually happen? How does that happen? Like that's heartbreaking if you, if you think about it. If you have any kind of spiritual pulse, desire to see the work of God continue, you want to see God uh, ministering deeply in your generation, you're on your knees and you're praying for revival and stuff. Imagine coming only one generation later and people say, I don't even know who God is or the things that he has done. How tragic and sad that would be. What can we learn from it? Here's a few things. I suspect that there are many, but let me give you a few. So can give you three, I'm gonna do them kind of quickly. I have them up on the screen. Number one, achievement without humility is misleading. Now think about this. How many times did God tell his people, I'm gonna take you to cities that you didn't build, to vineyards that you didn't plant, in fact, he even said, we looked at this passage last week, he said, I'm gonna take you into the promised land, I'm gonna push the people out, not because you're so good, but as a punishment for the evil that's already there, right? Achievement without humility is misleading. And let me tell you to consider this. God can humble you, or you can choose to be humble. I suspect I could say it this way, that bowing your knee in humility is so much better than falling to your knee in humiliation. To start here, you don't have as far to fall. And it's a better place for us as Christ followers. That's why scripture tells us over and over and over and over again to be humble. Christian leader, and I've got a lot of Christian leaders that are here leading in a variety of different ways. Let me speak to you for a moment. You are not the reason for the success that you encounter. You know, when we start to understand that in humble leadership, we say, you know, God has probably done more in spite of me than because of me. And that is not false humility. It's probably more true than you realize and more true than I realize. You're not the reason for the success that you encounter. In some, a similar way, you're not the reason for the failures that you're facing either. You, sometimes we put that bad rap on us. I'll take responsibility for all the failures. God gets the credit for all the, all the wins. You just put the whole thing in his hands and serve him faithfully. Serve him in humility. 1 Peter 5, 6. This has become a bit of a theme verse as I think about these kind of things that, that Peter writes, and he, he says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. 
It's all under his hand. The work that you want to do, the, the calling in your life, all of, all of that is under his hand. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. So you, you humble yourself, and in due time, he will lift you up. Let him do that. You don't have to compete for attention. You don't have to compete for likes. You don't have to build your brand and build your name. I, I see so much of this in, in my brothers and sisters in, in Christian leadership that I just, I just have to step back sometimes and I say like, are we really leading in humility that says he gets the credit? I'll scrub the toilet. One of my staff members just said that to me. He said, Dude, just tell me what you need me to do. I'll scrub the toilet if you need me to do because he's a humble leader. So that's number one. Achievement without humility is misleading. Number two, activity without familiarity is self-deluding. They no longer recognized the character of their own God. So we say, oh, I'm going to be busy, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do all of these kind of things, but do you, do you know him? Do you, do you know his heart? And I'm up early this morning, and I'm wrestling with this. I've got to preach this to you. I've got to think, do I really say this out of a heart that's connected to the heart of God? And I pray by his grace that it is. Or am I just going to keep busy serving him? You know, Oswald Chambers, he said it this way. He said that the biggest barrier for our devotion to Jesus is the service that we do for him. And I had to wrestle with that for a while. What, what does he mean by that? The, the serving Jesus is a good thing, and it is a good thing. But sometimes we can get ourselves so busy doing and going, we confuse busyness or activity with familiarity or knowing. And the, the beauty of the relationship with Jesus is not that you would do more things for him, but that you would know him and be known by him. Paul said that. He said, I want to know Christ he said, I want to know Christ in the glory of all of his resurrection. I want to know him in the, in the, in the, suffer, in the uh, fellowship of his suffering. But I want to know Christ. Not just be busy with things. Not just be what, <laughs> I love this quote from J.R.R. Tolkien, feeling like butter scraped over too much bread. That's just a great image. And that's how we get when we're busy, but we're not connected to the heart of the Father. So activity without familiarity is self-deluding. We see that through the book of Judges. And then finally, let me just give you this one for, for the last one. That courage and obedience and faithfulness, we talked about all those in the book of Joshua, all of those things matter. Courage and obedience and faithfulness must be renewed in every generation. That in every generation, new commitments must be made. In every generation, new leaders must take their place. And we must not micromanage the next generation in a way that prevents them from being kingdom builders. We got to embrace that. We got to make space for the next generation. And here's what I want to say to you, young, young people that are my younger brothers and sisters, and you pick the age. You know, if you say, okay, I'll be your younger brother or sister today, then this is for you. As we know as a church that the greatest influence we will ever have is to the next generation. Gideon's first act when he was called to be a judge, tear down the idols of your father. And that was not a small task, and people were really ticked at him for that. He had to take a huge risk to be obedient in that. And when I think about that, I just can't help but thinking that every generation, you know, there's some degree, there's this dance that we do, and every next generation, you will look at the work that has been done before you, and some of the things that we will have passed down actually need to be torn down. 
And some of the things that have been established by God's grace need to be upheld. And you're going to have to be very discerning in that process. Be mindful of the things that you keep. Be mindful of the things that you tear down. That we may learn from the story of Gideon. I want to just give a simple charge to those who will come after us. And when I'm saying this, I'm talking to young people in the room. I'm talking to awake students. I'm talking to kids ministry kids. I'm talking to those of you, anybody that's younger than me. And I'm getting older all the time. Here's what I would say. Do not be content with riding the coattails of your parents' faith. That is the journey and the challenge if you grew up in the church. That much of what you have done in the space of spiritual discipline or spiritual growth has been simply saying, I'm just doing what my parents have told me to do. There must become a holy discontent at some point in which you say, I will not simply ride the coattails of my parents' faith. And parents that are in the room, embrace that. To say, help your kids grow their own roots, make their own steps, make their own mistakes, but to take seriously a walk with Jesus. Pray for that. Ask that the Lord would increase their hunger. Uh, Second thing I would say to those, my younger brothers and sisters, the time will come probably sooner than you think when you must make your faith your own. Like there, there was a time in your maybe great-grandparents, my grandparents' generation, that it was actually advantageous to be a person of faith, a God-fearing, a Jesus-loving person. People would look at you in the community and they would say, whoa, there's a man or a woman of character. Why? Because they go to church and they love Jesus and everything else. Then you get down a generation and it was kind of like, well, sort of tolerated. You get to my generation, probably less so tolerated. In fact, I remember going to, uh, I remember going to jury duty I got selected for jury duty, so you go through that whole thing. And, and the, the, one of the, the higher-ups that were there, they were like, what would you say you do again? I said, oh, I'm a pastor. They said, oh, you don't have to worry, but they won't pick you. I said, really? They were like, oh, yeah, they can't. They, they don't like the pastors and faith people. They, they avoid them if possible. Wow. It's like you can't even get on jury duty, right, as a Jesus-loving person. You know that your esteem has fallen down. Faith in Jesus will become increasingly more costly. And to my kids and someday uh, grandkids, they they may live in a world where, you know, it looks more like it did most of the time since the time of Christ. Not like recently, where it actually costs you something to stand up and be counted and say, I'm with Christ and I believe in God. So we can learn some wisdom, and we can pray like crazy, believing in God's sovereign plan. We don't have to panic, but we can pray like crazy for the next generation that they would grow roots and be strong. So I'm going to ask you to stand up, and worship team, you can come up and lead us. You've led us so beautifully today, and thank you for enduring some, some extra time here. I think it's just been good, and the sweetness of the Lord's presence as we're, as we're ministering uh, to one another. I want to simply pray for you. Um, real simple response. You don't have to really do anything except just be still and, and, and receive here for a moment. So God, I want to ask that you would stir in us in a special way by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you first and foremost. I pray that there would be an overwhelming gratitude that would well up 
as we read failure after failure after failure of human effort. That should prompt something in us to say thank you that my right standing has nothing to do with my capacity or my ability, but has everything to do with the finished work of Jesus, and I gratefully receive everything that he has given. That's a good place to be. Three things you might be praying for today. Number one, I'll just ask you to raise a hand if this is you. I'll just pray for you. Um, I suspect there's somebody that's here today that would simply say, I need to ask for a little greater dose of humility in my life and leadership. It's a great prayer. I pray it a lot. I encourage you to pray it a lot. Raise a hand if that's you today. Yeah. Jesus, all around this room, there are people that are saying, I want just less of me and more of you. And we pray that you would do a heart work in us to, to plant the seeds of humility, that we would be the first ones to say, I'll, I'll bow my knee in humility. Make us a humble people. Teach us that way. It's very Christ-like. There might be somebody that's here today, maybe your prayer is this. You would just say, you know, uh, busyness for Jesus is not the same as knowing him well. I want to know him better. I want to be more familiar with his voice. I want to be still and I want to listen and I want to respond well when he's calling. Just to, to know him more. Maybe that's your cry. Raise your hand if that's your cry today. Yeah. But all around this room, you are increasing hunger. And that is an answer to prayer. We say thank you for that. Would you increase our hunger for you, God? Even today, surprise us with the opportunity to, to hear from you. Surprise us with the opportunity to say, I, I can be obedient as you're calling me forward. As we look in your word, I pray that it would come alive because you have written this to us. There's others that maybe today you just say, in my generation, I'm renewing my commitment that courage that confidence, that faithfulness would be renewed in my generation. If it starts with me and I walk alone, it starts with me. Just raise your hand if you're saying that. And you don't have to be young to say yes to that, by the way. Yeah, every generation. Father, would you cement and would you raise up leaders, even from this room, even from this congregation, raise up leaders who will affect the spiritual dynamic of their generation. That Judges 2.10 would not be true of us. That we would pass down a, a beautiful legacy and that the next generation would take it even farther. That they would fly harder, sacrifice more deeply, make a greater kingdom impact, lead with more authority and authenticity, walk in step with your spirit, I just sense even this morning that there's somebody that's just, you are going to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before you.
And do you listen? As God uses you, stay humble. Keep bowing your knee, even as he leads you forward. But we bless the work that God is going to do in the next generation. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for meeting us today. Thank you for leading us today as we commit this last song to you. I just pray that your presence would be with us. Lead us well. Give us courage to follow. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you.